Welcome to the Advent Houston podcast. At Advent, our mission is to embrace, embody, and extend the grace of Jesus Christ to the Texas Medical Center, Rice University, and the surrounding neighborhood. We're glad that you're here with us today. Welcome again to Advent. If I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, my name is Taylor Leachman. I'm the pastor here at Advent. And um, it's actually, I think, been a while since we've reminded ourselves uh, of what our mission is. Um, And at Advent, our mission is to embrace, embody, and extend the grace of Jesus Christ to the Texas Medical Center, to Rice University, and to the surrounding neighborhoods. And so uh, it's been a, a wonderful first semester uh, of worship thus far, but it's also been wonderful to see what God has been doing in our midst as we've, uh, as we've gone about this, as we've even now had the name Advent for about a year and a half. Uh, and part of the reason we chose the name Advent was we wanted to capture part of what our entire existence is about as a church. Henry Nouwen, in one of the quotes at the very opening of your bulletin, uh, says, The Lord is coming. He's always coming. When you have ears to hear and eyes to see, you will recognize him at any moment of your life. Life is Advent. Life is recognizing the coming of the Lord. Just as we said earlier that Jesus coming again to judge the living and the dead is actually hope-filled, we long for his coming again. Um, And we long uh, uh, to to tell others about his first coming uh, as well. And so during this Advent season at Advent Church, as we celebrate all life as Advent, um, we are actually doing a sermon series on the mothers of Jesus uh, last week we we talked about Tamar, um, and this week we are doing Rahab, uh, and and then next week we will we will do Ruth. So um, we have a lot of scripture to read uh, as we as we look through um, and learn more about who Rahab is and how God uh, has been at work through people like her. Um, so. Uh, Would you all read along with me? I'm going to read first in Matthew's gospel, which uh, lists the genealogy uh, headed toward Jesus up until Rahab. And then we're going to look at Joshua chapter 2, which is the main story uh, where she exists. So Matthew chapter 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac and Isaac, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez was the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab, the father of Nation, and Nation, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. Now let's look now to Joshua chapter 2, verse 1 through 21. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went, and they came into the house of a prostitute, whose name was Rahab, and they lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, the men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you who entered this house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them 
And she said, true, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where, they, where, they, where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them the way, uh, all the way to the Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Before the men lay down, she came up to, the, to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all of the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the waters of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to Sihon and Og when you devoted to destruction. And as soon as he heard it, our, our, as we heard it, our hearts melted and there were, were no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord, your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, our life for yours, even to death. If you, uh, if you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, go into the hills or the pursuers will encounter you and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward, you may go your way. The men said to her, we will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie the scarlet cord to the window through which you let us down, and you shall gather into the house your father and mother, your brothers, and all of your father's household. And then if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that we have made us swear, that you have made us swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. Then she sent them away and they departed and she tied the scarlet cord to the window. This is the word of the Lord. Would you all pray with me? Father, we thank you. Um, we thank you for people like Rahab. Um, we thank you for your word. And we thank you that as we consider it tonight, Father, you promise that you are with us. As two or three are gathered here this evening. And so, Father, I pray um, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts will be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Do you have a Christian hero? Um, someone in your life who you've read, someone who you've watched, someone who's uh, inspired you in the faith. And if so, what does that person look like to you? Do they have perfect quiet times every day? Do they work in ministry? Do, are they bald? Um, do they have an amazing marriage or obedient children? 
Um, is it their character? Is it maybe their patience or their humility that you're drawn to over and over again? Well, what about heroes of the Bible? Right? Do you have heroes in the Bible uh, who inspire you? Or does that actually begin to feel a little bit moralistic? Um, right? Where we think, I, I, I know David is sort of a hero of mine. And so if I'm supposed to live my life like David, then that means I need to I need to slay my giants and have a lot of bravery just like he did. Or uh, I need to be like Moses as he stood up against Pharaoh and as he did amazing things and said, like, let my enemies go or let my people go uh, from my enemies. Well, when we approach the idea of heroes of the faith like that, it becomes incredibly moralistic. It becomes incredibly legalistic. When we try to live up to somebody else's standard and live just like them, when we fail, it becomes devastating. Or when we've built them up as a hero and they fail, it's equally devastating. So the Bible does, in fact, give us heroes of the faith. It talks about it, even in the, in, in the book of Hebrews. But they, we, we are not given heroes of the faith to live like they did. We are rather given heroes of the faith to learn to persevere as they persevered so that we can learn and see the ways in which God has been at work through them. Heroes of the faith are meant to encourage us. And because of that, we see the scriptures put forth heroes of the faith that we would almost never consider like listening to podcasts from or following on Instagram or reading books uh, from, right? It's, it's for reasons like that, that that would actually keep us from from making somebody like Rahab a hero of the faith, yet that is what Hebrews calls her. Far from having perfect quiet times, far from having her family life all put together, and far from being even the greatest of ethical characters, Rahab's resume on its face does not inspire any of us in the faith. But what does it do? No, it was in her weakness and in her deep faith and abiding faith that she waits for the Lord. Right, she's a prostitute who lives on the very margins of her community, yet the scriptures paint Rahab as an example of faith. She's a model for us, not because of who she is, not because of what she has done, but because her life serves of what all heroes of the faith are meant to do. They're meant to be magnifying glasses for the Lord so that we can see him more clearly, so that we can know who he is and what he is doing. And so it's with that in mind that I want to talk about Rahab as both as, as our model of faith. I want to talk first about Rahab's faith, and then second, I want to talk about Rahab's faith in action. But let's first look at a little bit of background uh, to this passage as we skip uh, multiple generations in the genealogy that I read earlier. So as we talked about last week with Tamar, it's almost unhelpful if you begin any later than Abraham. You have to begin with Abraham. As it's with Abraham that we see the promises of God are initially made. He promises to make Abraham a great people and to give him this land. And so we, 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 we now have followed Abraham into this growth of an amazing people where God has been faithful. He's brought them out of the land of Egypt. He's brought them out of slavery. He's helped them even to cross through cleanly on the Red Sea. But he's forced them to wait. They haven't been able to inhabit the land yet. And that's where we pick up here in the story. 
The people of Israel have been wandering in the wilderness and they're about ready to enter into the promised land. And so all of a sudden they're coming up to the Jordan River and they're headed toward Jericho, which is the very opening of the promised land. See, on one side is the wilderness, on another side is, uh, is mountains. And this is really the only area where there's amazing water. It is, the, uh, it's, it's basically the drawbridge into the promised land. There's no other way around it. And so God's people have come there. And Joshua sends two spies out to check out the land and to report back. This city is heavily fortified. This city is the gateway to where they need to go. But the spies are, are able to enter the city. And they come across the most strange and most unlikely of sympathizers. Like they meet this common prostitute who houses them. She's a foreigner. She's not an Israelite. Um, she's likely impoverished. Her family is in some sort of, of, of crazy difficult circumstance in order for her to be living out her life doing this profession. But she is the one through whom God works. She is the one who God delights to bring into this family genealogy. She's the one who points us toward God's work and toward God's grace. In his famous sermon on Rahab, uh, Charles Spurgeon poetically describes Rahab's faith through multiple uh, alliterative and, and striking adjectives. Uh, I'm not going to do all of them, uh, but I really liked two of them, and I'm going to use them uh, as I talk about her faith. And that was the singular nature of her faith, and then the other is the sanctifying nature of her faith. What do I mean by the singular nature of her faith? Well, see, the land of Canaan was a multitude of city-states at the time. It wasn't like one united empire, as we think about today. And actually, the entire area was under Egyptian rule. And Moses, right, his leadership up until that time, had demonstrated God's mighty and miraculous acts over the course of 40 years. Um, and what had happened during Moses' leadership was not forgotten. It was, it was known all throughout the Egyptian land. And so Rahab actually says here that though the people of Jericho have heard about what happened in Egypt, they've also heard, um, they've also heard about what has happened far more recently. And they're saying, no, no, we don't fear the Israelites. Rahab is saying that she fears the Lord. She says in verse 10, we have heard about what happened at the Red Sea. And we have heard about what happened at Sihon and Og. But look again at Rahab's words. She doesn't just say to the, 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 these men, like, man, we know, like, the Israelite army is super scary. Y'all have weapons of mass destruction. Y'all have super trained Israelite forces that are coming in here, and we are done. No, she says, we have heard what the Lord, the God of heaven and earth, has done for you. In hearing about who God is or what he has done, we often respond in one of two ways. We respond oftentimes in, in denial and rebellion, or we respond in faith. When we hear what God has done, when we hear what the Bible uh, has to teach us, we tend to, to diminish it to a point that we, 
that we don't need to care about it anymore, or that it, it makes us angry um, when we hear about it, and so therefore we don't need to listen to it, um, and, we, and we rebel against it. When God tells us things like, love your neighbor as yourself, we're like that Pharisee or that scribe who wants to diminish it, and so we want to ask back to the Lord, well, yeah, okay, we, we need to love our neighbor as ourselves, but who's my neighbor? Right? I, need to, I need to exactly figure out who that guy is or who that gal is so, so I can know what's actually being commanded of me. I can't do what you're asking or I, I don't want to, so let me find out what the bare minimum is. Or we diminish God's actions when we hear about it. We think, well, that didn't really happen. He didn't really part the Red Sea. Right? That was just like the luck of timing with the tide. Uh, he didn't really bring Jesus back from the dead. His followers... They just couldn't deal with the emotional turmoil of the fact that Jesus had died. And so they imagined that Jesus was alive or they imagined that he'd actually died when, when really he just like passed out um, from the pain. No, we struggle to accept the fullness of God's truth. We, full, we, we struggle to accept the fullness of God's power revealed to us in the scriptures or we act in rebellion to it. Right? We believe that it did happen, but we hate it. Right? What a buzzkill, we think. What a, what a good thing we have going on here in Jericho. How dare God come and mess it up? So like the people of, of Jericho, in those circumstances, when we rebel, we want to just batten down the hatches. We want to get all the guards there, and we want to say, you are not taking this. This is my area. I'm fine with you taking the rest of the promised land, but this is mine. You may have no more. But Rahab isn't like those around her. Rahab isn't like that tendency that we all have within us. She accepts what she has heard as true. She believes that God is on their side. And though she's only lived in a polytheistic context, she acknowledges the Lord. She acknowledges and even uses the name that was given to Moses at the burning bush in Exodus chapter 4. She uses the very name Yahweh. She knows and attributes all that has happened to him, the God of heaven and earth. Though everyone around her refuses to believe, she singularly believes and trusts that Yahweh is the Lord. Secondly, we see that her faith is a sanctifying faith. We probably have maybe even said this to other people, but I know we've definitely heard uh, amongst those in the church that like, well, God loves you exactly as you are. I, and that is incredibly true. I'm not in any way downplaying that. Um, there is no one outside of his grace. God loves all of those. There's no singular sin that can take his grace away from you. But just because God loves us as we are doesn't mean that he wants us to stay as we were or as we are. The passage isn't clear about what exactly her position was at this particular point in time, but we know that at some point in, in her life, that Rahab was a prostitute and most likely is even at this particular point. Right? She was known at the very least as Rahab the prostitute. But she likely is still serving in that capacity right now because 
if you were a prostitute at the time, then your house actually functioned much like a Western saloon did, where it served as both a place of, uh, of, of uh, kind of a brothel, but also like a hotel. Um, and so she is actually treating the spies here, and it's pretty clear in the passage that they are here only for the hotel capacity. Um, she is, is opening up her home to these spies, and she is served as a prostitute. So they've stayed with her. And as I said before, it's pretty clear that they're only there for the shelter. Because almost always in the scriptures, it would say that they would have laid with her or that they knew her if it meant something more. But they've interacted with Rahab merely on this spy trip, uh, kind of as a, as a landlady, so to speak. And as they talk with her, and as she believes the truth about Yahweh, she believes that the Lord is going to give Jericho over to the Israelites. And this meeting and this news is a catalyst for her life. It changes everything about who she is. And not just her, it actually changes everything about her family situation as well. To encounter God is to admit honestly before him who we are. It's to take a look at all that we have done and all that we are doing. And to say, well, God loves me. Yes, that is true. But not to stop there. That the Lord Jesus Christ has died for me. Yes, that's true. But not to stop there. But to say, I am turning from what I have been and who I have been before and what I've been doing, and I'm turning toward him. My sin, my struggles are the result of me doing it my own way. So now I turn toward him and I fix my eyes upon him and his way. We're to turn from our love of this world to our love of him. Loving the Lord with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, and all of our strength, rather than loving the, the world that he created or loving myself more than anything else, right? And as we, as we do so, um, as we live out, we become more and more like Christ. We become more and more uh, like the object of our faith. And that leads us to a particular action. So now let's look at the second part, Rahab's action. James says, faith without works is dead. Right? He famously writes that in his letter, and it's for that very reason that he picks Rahab as an example of somebody uh, who, who exemplifies his point, that her faith actually leads to action. And his point is that faith is always connected to action. What's good is... It, for, uh, and that's a very good thing, because for Rahab, the spies, uh, and even for Israel, if she were to treat faith like many of us actually treat the word faith, um, in, the, in the American understanding of it, then they would not get into the land, right? Because we often treat faith like an intellectual or an emotional thing that we're supposed to agree with, right? Have you accepted Jesus into your heart? That actually can mean something wonderful, um, and oftentimes, the way we use it is less wonderful. We use it to mean, are you feeling pretty happy about who Jesus is and what he's been doing? Then go ahead and like, take him as an admit one ticket for, G for, for heaven. Um, well, if Rahab was like, yeah, you know, Yahweh has given the land over to you, and I feel kind of bad about it, and I really believe it, but that's, that's the end, and that's the extent of what that faith means for me. Well, then, then it would have meant nothing. Her actions would have been meaningless. 
Her faith is worthless unless it drives her to action, unless it drives her to obedience in God, to whom all things belong. And that's what she does. Her faith actually causes her to act. She hides the spies by flouting uh, the Jericho authorities. She helps them escape down the wall, putting, putting her life and even maybe her family's life at risk. She, she grabs her family, knowing that if they're all actually in the room where the scarlet cord is, is held, that they will be alive and they will be made well. And she places that scarlet cord in her window, demonstrating tangibly her belief that, that God will act through the Israelites. And then she waits And that is actually an action as well. She waits with anticipation that the promises that were made by the spies will become true because of who God is and what he has been doing. So Rahab joins the mission. She joins the Israelite mission, the mission of God as he gives his people the promised land. But she's not participating in God's mission in some grand, new, and amazing way. She's paying attention to what the world around her needs from her. And she's participating in those very nearby ways. She's aware of the immediate needs in her midst and the way that she can serve. So she aids the spies who come to her lodging. She gathers her family into her home for safety. She places a scarlet cord in her own window. Here's my point as as, as I draw attention to that. We talked about at the very beginning that the mission at Advent is to embrace, embody, and extend the grace of Jesus Christ. But when we talk about extending the grace of Jesus, or when we're talking about being a church on mission, a lot of times we're talking about trying to do some sort of crazy thing to get people to know the grace that Jesus has for them. And for some of you, that may be true. God may be calling you to do something crazy. He may be calling you to go live in a foreign land, uh, to pick up your roots and to go over there and to tell others about who Jesus is and what he's done. But for the vast majority of us, it's in very, very small ways. It's in ways just like Rahab. Because we're merely called to deny ourselves oftentimes and to be obedient. Obedient with maybe the earnings that God has provided for us, to be obedient um, uh, to to what we are actually called uh, to do that God has placed before us. But extending God's grace to others, it's not actually about doing a bunch of extra stuff in your life. It's not about adding a bunch of things to your schedule. It's about paying attention to the people that God has placed around you, about paying attention uh, to the work that God has already been doing in your midst. And it's about choosing to follow God's imperatives rather than the cultural norms that are at play in our world. So what are the areas in your life that you need not to to add to your schedule, um, but to just pay attention to differently? What are areas of your life where you need to take a few moments to think and to see where you can extend God's grace? Not in extravagant ways, but in very small and immediate ways. Right? Maybe it's paying attention to the kid at school who needs friends and extending grace to them. Maybe it's investing in, in an intern or a trainee who's under you and, and just wants somebody to ask them more questions about their life. 
Maybe it's paying attention to the divorcee in our midst, in your midst, on your, on your street, in your neighborhood, who every time the Christmas season comes up, it's not a joyful season. It's merely a reminder of what could have been or what should have been in their family life. Or maybe it's just inviting someone over to eat with you and your family. And I want to pause on that last one for a minute. I want to pause actually on a lot of these. Um, but that last one in particular, I, I mentioned how living out our faith is not meant to feel like adding something to our life. But a lot of times when we invite someone over for dinner, we feel like that's a big addition, even if it's not. Um, we feel like it's a big addition because when we invite someone over, that means there's a whole lot more cleaning. There's a whole lot of shoving things into closets. There's a lot of burying character flaws uh, all through that period, all uh, under, uh, under the veneer of having someone over. But if we look at Rahab's actions, they are far from that in her own hospitality. See, Rahab can't hide anything from those who she's taken into her home here. She is exposed. She is vulnerable. And the Israelites see her for all of her messiness. Not only that, every person who reads the Bible sees her for all of her messiness. What if we allowed others into our mess? What if before having someone over for dinner, we didn't need to feel, uh, feel like we had to clean it in such a way that the queen uh, would feel welcome in our home? Right? What if we lived our lives out in front of them? Where through our action, through our struggles, and through our repentance, like Rahab, they begin to see the grace of God bigger. What if we begin to live missionally like a magnifying glass? This, uh, when my wife and I bought our new home in Bel Air, one of the things we wanted was to buy it with, with an extra bedroom so that we could uh, have folks come and live with us. And thus far, we've, in the last uh, six months, we've had two different people live with us for over a month. Um, and I would love to say that we have been able to curate our mess uh, so that none of them could see it. Uh, but that is just not true. Right? Uh, they've seen us frustratingly yelling at our children. They've seen us leaving our dishes in the sink for the other one to do. Uh, they've seen us um, watching TV as a family at dinner instead of having quiet times all together. Right? Um, but I pray that as we've invited them into our mess, that they've also seen us asking our kids for forgiveness that they've seen us maybe hopefully sacrificing for one another every now and then and having open and honest conversation. And they've seen us depending upon the grace of Jesus as broken vessels that we are. Beth Moore, um, who's actually, you know, I've kind of forget that she's from Houston because she's, she's talked almost more on like a national level than, than in the Houston area, but is, a, is sort of a, a celebrity Christian. She's a hero of the faith for many. Um, but maybe the last year or two has kind of realized uh, that one, that that, that pedestal was terrible. Um, but, and she's actually begun to write a little bit more about that. Um, and this week she, she wrote that uh, on that exact topic. She said, I think my generation did the younger generations a disservice. By and large, I think my generation was the introduction to platform culture. Definitely to Christian celebrity culture. She said, throngs of us really did just want people to know Jesus and how to get 
how to get to know him through Bible study and through prayer. But I think we made speaking and teaching and traveling and book publishing look glamorous. She continues, what God wants for Jesus' followers is for us to be filled with his spirit, not with ourselves. God is so kind and generous to appoint a good many celebrations and even some dreams that seem to come true. Right, that, that many of us actually do get to live out uh, writing a book and speaking and teaching if that is what we desire. But his objective with us is not to make us successful, but to make us reliant. He wants observers to see that a big God has been at work in us, not a big ego. And I pray that that is true for the pastor at Advent. But I pray that as we all are little Christs that go back out into the world and we represent him to the world, that that would be true as well, that we serve as magnifying glasses to a bigger God, like Rahab here, that we would put before others just what our life is like, our life of faith, our life of repentance, and that they would see just how beautiful God's grace is, that we actually believe it in real small ways without adding too much to our schedules. A Christian hero in the faith is not meant to be someone that we want to be like. It's someone who makes, you know, it's not somebody who makes life look easy or life look perfect, but it's someone who magnifies the beauty of the grace of Jesus Christ in the world. Because he is a God who delights to rescue people like Rahab, who delights to rescue people like me, who delights to rescue people like you. And the world needs to see through a magnifying glass that is our life just how amazing this God is. May that be true of us as we, as we live out our faith before the watching world, we pray. Let me pray under that end. Our Father, we thank you. Oh, we thank you for, um, we thank you for Jesus, that he loves people like us, that he loves people like Rahab, that you invite all of us into your family. So Father, I pray that as we, as we learn more of what it means to be people of your family, I pray, Lord, that we wouldn't feel like we need um, to get all of it right and good, but that we're to be a people who live out faith and repentance before a world that they might see and taste and know the goodness of Jesus Christ and what his kingdom brings. And so may we live that out, I pray, by your Holy Spirit. Amen.